you have your Bibles, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. We're uh, looking this morning at a man's man. We're looking at John the Baptist. And uh, I think that there's this perception out there sometimes that uh, for believers, and, and maybe for men in particular, the ideal sort of stereotype of a man is someone who never has doubts, who never struggles with their faith, who is always utterly convinced and utterly confident and totally certain. And as we encounter John the Baptist this morning, a man's man if there ever was one, we're going to see that with regards to his walk with the Lord, he struggled with doubts too. I want you to be encouraged by that. And I also want you to be challenged to follow the example he sets before us. What he did with his doubt is what makes all the difference. So we're going to read the text, and then we're going to pray, and we'll get to work. If you would, look with me. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had, inf- had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's bow and have a word of prayer. God, we, we thank you so much for giving us your word, for speaking to us, for, our, our, for opening our minds to hear and to see. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit, our hearts would be opened to grasp and understand, that we would be challenged to have faith and to believe in you. Lord, all of us struggle with doubts. All of us struggle with anxiety regarding the future. All of us face uncertainties, and Lord, all of us need your shepherd's touch in our lives. Father, as we look at this this morning, I I just pray, Lord, that you would show us that while we may not know the future, we can know the one who is taking us home. So when we don't understand what it is that your hand is doing, Lord, help us to trust your heart and to believe in you. We love you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as almost all of you in this room are familiar with, and probably not so much the folks from Kansas, driving in the snow, in the driving blizzard snow, I don't know, maybe you guys get the occasional blizzard in Kansas. Oh, okay, I was thinking, wait a second, no, no, that's far enough north. I'm from Texas, we never get snow in Texas. Um, Driving in the snow can be horrific. You know, especially if it's really, really coming down. You, You got this blizzard in your face, and you got your headlights on, it's at night, and all you can really see as you're driving is just the snow in front of you reflecting the light of your headlights right back in your face. It's the same if you've ever driven in the fog. Just to get in the car and to go down the freeway, if you're driving in really thick, I'm talking that really thick fog, it can be a little bit unnerving. And what is your natural response? If you're driving in the snow and it's coming down so hard that you can't see more than 10 feet beyond the end of your vehicle, or you're driving in the fog and it's so thick you can't see more than 10 feet beyond the end of your hood, what, what do you do? 
Do you stomp it? Some of you are thinking that's what we need to do. That's not what sane people do. That's not what, you know, calm, rational individuals would do. You slow down because you don't know what's out there. You don't know what's ahead of you. And, uh, and that's the proper response. If you can't see further down the road, the right thing to do is to slow down. Now, when we look at prophets, the perception is that the, the way that we typically take these guys is that these were individuals who could foresee, by the power of God, they could foresee and predict the future. They could, in a sense, see down the road, see what was coming, and then offer guidance and counsel. That is not what a prophet does. A real understanding of prophets, what they always said first and foremost, was that you needed to trust the Lord, you needed to be faithful to what the Lord was telling you, And then they would give specific instructions. Here are some things you are doing. Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. Here's what you need to let go of. Here's what you need to pursue to authenticate, to legitimize what it was they were saying. They would often give us a glimpse of some future event. When that event came to pass, when it happened, we would know that they were truly speaking on behalf of of the Lord. False prophets are a problem. They misguide us, they misdirect us. And if I could say this with love, you know who the ultimate worst false prophet is? It's in this room right now. It's you. Anytime you look at the future with anxiety and you're filled with fear over what might happen, Or the opposite. Anytime you look at the future and you are filled with joy over the prospects that lie in front of you, in both instances, you really don't know what the future holds. You are wrong to fear the future. You are also wrong to look with an abundance of joy at the future if you do so apart from Christ. The prophets of old were concerned not so much with telling us what was going to happen as they were with directing us to the person who stood and still stands as the author behind all of human history. We encounter here in Matthew chapter 11, in Jesus' estimation, the greatest of all men, the greatest of all prophets until the arrival of Christ, John the Baptist. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. The scriptures predicted his arrival. You know, all throughout the Old Testament, there's this prediction, there's this anticipation, there's this excitement that Christ is going to come. But just as much as that guy is foretold, there is also mention of another one who's going to come before him, who's going to come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And the interpretation of that was that it was going to actually be Elijah. And we know, because Christ is going to tell us right here in this chapter, that John the Baptist is Elijah. He is the one that has been foretold. His job, as it was prophesied by the prophets who came before him, was to make straight the path of the Lord. What does that mean? In Isaiah 40, it says he is going to call for the hills to be leveled, for the valleys to be filled in, for there to be a straight and easy path. And as we look at his ministry, we see that really what he is doing is he arrives on the scene as he begins to proclaim a baptism a baptism of repentance and a baptism of faith and expectation in the coming Messiah. Now, I was called to ministry when I was about 18 years old. I went to seminary, and there I encountered men 
who were as old as 60. You know, when the Lord speaks to your heart and asks you to serve him, that call can come at any time. If someone were to say to me, well, I knew I was supposed to be a minister from before I was born. I'd look at that man and probably say, yeah, right, sure you were. And yet that's the truth of John the Baptist. Now, I don't know that he was really fully aware of his infancy. You know, what's your earliest memory? I, I can think back to probably when I was three or four years old. That's probably as far back as I can remember. But we know from the Gospel of Luke, Mary is pregnant with Jesus. Her cousin, Elizabeth, is pregnant with John the Baptist. And the scriptures clearly say that the Spirit was so strong upon John that when Mary gets together with her cousin Elizabeth, they're hanging out. Soon as Jesus comes closer to John, they're both still in the womb. John just starts going crazy. He starts kicking it up. He starts jazzing out. And, and Elizabeth just seems to know as she's feeling John inside of her, getting excited, she seems to know instinctively that the baby inside of her is excited because of the baby inside of Mary. And so from before the guy was even born, he is engaging in this ministry of telling people about Jesus. So that's kind of awkward. When did the Lord call you into ministry? I wasn't even born yet. And I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. Now, that doesn't happen often, so don't say that if you're feeling that, okay? Now, the other comment I just want to make is he was just going nuts and having a good time. And some people say Baptists can't dance. But John the Baptist was dancing in the womb. So I just want to put that out there for you, all right? Just want to make those two playful comments for you. John predicted the coming of the Messiah. When he began his ministry, he was baptizing people. He was calling people to repentance. He was asking individuals to repent of their sins, to let go of what they were holding on to, and to place their faith in Jesus. He is confident in who Jesus is. From before he was born, he sensed who Christ was. And all throughout his ministry, he was expecting and anticipating a moment in which he knew his cousin would step up to fulfill his destiny as our Messiah and Savior. John, the Gospel of John, records about John the Baptist. He's out in the wilderness. He's baptizing people. Jesus shows up. John sees him from a distance. And from the moment he sees him, John says, in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 129, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew it. He knew who Jesus was. He proclaimed it. Jesus begins to minister, and John begins to fade into the background. And we encounter him here in chapter 11 of Matthew, and his ministry effectively has come to an end. Matthew alludes to the fact that he is now in prison. Look with me. It says in verse 2, when John, this is a reference to John the Baptist, heard, now look at this phrase, in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Now, the disciples he's referring to are not the disciples who are following Jesus. We're not talking about the 12 apostles. You see, there was still a great following of individuals that were following after John the Baptist. So, he's in prison. He has done something that has landed him in the slammer. He's in jail. 
people, his friends, his disciples are still bringing to him reports of what it is that Jesus is doing. He's doing this, man, and the other day he said this thing over here, and then he went and he did this. And John is hearing all of this. He has already proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. He is now hearing news reports while he is in prison of things that Jesus is doing. You'd expect him to send a telegram. Good job, cousin. Way to go. I'm proud of you. But that's not what he says. Instead, in prison, having already declared that Jesus is the Messiah, hearing what he is doing, he sends his guys to him to ask him the question, are you really the one? Look, he makes the statement. He sent word by his disciples, verse 3, and he said to him, are you the one? In the Greek, literally, are you the coming one? Are you the coming one, or shall we find another? Now, before you begin to throw John under the bus and say, this guy has no faith, you need to understand, and again, this doesn't always show up real well in our translations. The Greek, the question is phrased in such a way that it anticipates a positive answer. In other words, what John is saying by way of his disciples is, you're the coming one, right? Like, yes, like, I think that, and I want just for you to confirm that for me. You're the coming one, right? Or are we really still looking for another guy? Why would that be important to him? He knows what his job is. He knows what God has called him to do. His job is real simple. He is to prepare the people of Israel. He is to prepare the nation for the coming Messiah. If Jesus isn't the guy, man, has he just had a major mulligan. He needs a do-over here because he has proclaimed that Christ is the Messiah. And if it's not Jesus... Well, he's in prison. And if it's not Jesus, he's got to figure out a way to get out of the slammer and to find the right guy to direct people to the right Messiah. Now, he anticipates that Jesus is the real deal. You'll notice that there's all kinds of expectation loaded in his statement. He makes the statement, are you the coming one? It's an interesting phrase. We find it in various forms You'll find it in all four of the Gospels. You'll find it used in several of Paul's letters in the New Testament. You find it in Hebrews. Are you the coming one? The one who has been foretold? The one we're waiting for? Are you the one that the Bible has been talking about? It's first used in the Psalms. And the nation of Israel for hundreds and thousands of years has known because God has told them that there is one, just one man who can rescue them. Notice it doesn't say, are you one of the ones to come? It's very specific. Are you the exact person, the one? There's only one. Are you the one that is supposed to come? You are, right? That's what John is saying. He knows what he's looking for. He knows what he's been called to do. And he knows it can only be one. Which, if you're familiar with any of the rabbinic teaching from this day and age, you know that that in and of itself is quite a conclusion. 
See, the Jews, as they were reading the Old Testament scriptures, all the prophecies that predicted the coming of Christ, they couldn't fathom in their minds that there would just be one. You have passages, particularly in the prophecy of Isaiah, that talk about him being a conquering king. And you have other passages that talk about him being a suffering servant. And as you put these two things together, they seem totally at odds with each other. And so rabbinic teaching at this point in time had gone so far as to say, perhaps there's two messiahs. You can find it mentioned in the Talmud. You can find ancient rabbis speculating on the fact that there could possibly be two guys. They just couldn't bring it all together as they were looking at these things. And John arrives at the conclusion, there's just one. And if you read the scriptures carefully, they all reference the fact that there's just going to be one. The teaching of his day is wrong. But John is crystal clear in what he knows the Bible is saying. His question is specific. Are you the one? He is having some doubts. As I look at this text, and I want you to look with me, I find in here at least four things that are probably upsetting John the Baptist. As I reflected upon this text this week, I think these are four things that we all struggle with. Before we jump into all of it, I want you to know that it's okay that you struggle with doubts and fears. I want you to know that it's okay that there are certain things that you are uncertain about. That doesn't make you less of a Christian. It doesn't make you less of a person. The question is, what do we do with our doubts? John turns to Jesus. There are four things that are plaguing John. Number one, it makes a statement here. He makes a statement in verse two. He sent word by his disciples. Where did he send word by his disciples from? It makes a statement. He heard in prison. Why is John in prison? See, John, he has been calling people to repentance. And he's been commenting on the fact that the nation of Israel is living in sin. And that they need a savior to set them free. And he's not one to be bashful or to be selective in terms of identifying what it is that people need to do in order to repent and prepare their hearts to receive Christ. He calls out Herod Antipas, the ruler of Israel. The thing that has landed him in prison, the reason why he is now in jail, is because in his preaching, the question has surfaced at some point in time, I highly doubt that Herod Antipas was there and said, hey, what do you think about me? You know, he's a ruler of Israel. I'm sure he may have been following John the Baptist closely, but I significantly, I seriously doubt that he was there in the crowd listening to John preach. Somebody posed the question, what do you think about Herod? What has Herod done? Herod has a brother named Philip, and basically what Herod has done is he has seduced his brother's wife, Herodias. He has seduced her. She has left him. She is now living with Herod Antipas. They are getting married The question was posed to John the Baptist, what do you think about this? He said, it is not lawful. In other words, it is a violation of God's word for him to have taken his brother's wife for his own. She properly belongs to another man. Of course, Herod Antipas heard that and said, throw him in jail. You don't tell me what to do. And this is a society in which kings and governors could do that. There's no due process. There's no law. It's whatever the guy on top says. 
So you get to ask the question, hey, you know the guy that has total authority that can throw you into jail without due process, without any kind of a court hearing? What do you think about his sin? That's me, and if that's most of us in this room, well, you know, who am I to judge, really? Come on, that's what we would say. Well, I have thoughts on it, but really, is it wise to comment on these things? I think I'll refrain from offering any public comment. His job is to get people to realize their need for Jesus. His ministry is to make a level path. His calling is to ask people to repent. And if you will not comment on sin, if you will not call sin for what it is, it makes it extremely difficult for people to see their need for a Savior. Furthermore, if people ask you to comment on things that are clearly black and white and spelled out in the Word of God that are just explicitly wrong, and you equivocate and you are not clear, how will people ever know the true Messiah? So John takes a step of faith. He knows what's going to happen. And he lands himself in jail. It is not right for him to have her. It is not lawful. It is a violation of God's will. Now, these are difficult circumstances. That's what causes doubt for a lot of us. We find ourselves trying to be faithful and true to the Lord. Things don't go well. We may have even anticipated that there would be difficulties that would arise. We may have studied the scriptures and known that suffering and persecution was going to be a natural response from the world as a result of faithfulness to Christ. We know it. We see it. We fully understand it. We expect it. And yet when it comes, it can still produce doubt. Am I suffering because of the Lord or am I just suffering because I'm an idiot and I said something I shouldn't have said? And that seed starts to grow in your heart and you begin to struggle. Man, am I doing the right thing? Man, am I, am I being true to the Lord? That seed of doubt starts to make him wonder about whether or not he's actually even fulfilled his ministry. It's starting to plague everything. You question one thing. You took a step of faith, a step of obedience for the Lord, you get slammed for it, even though the scriptures tell you to expect that, you begin to doubt, question, was I right to obey the Lord in this way? You allow that doubt to creep in. It's going to start haunting every area of your life where you were trying to be faithful here, you got slammed for it, you're questioning it, now you're questioning everything. The doubt grows. Are you the Messiah? Now, where some of you are at, that's the same struggle that you're facing. If I stand up and I tell people about Jesus at work, if someone asks me the question, well, I'm not going to trust in Jesus, what do you think about me? Am I going to go to hell? We know there's a right answer to that question, even though it's uncomfortable to say it. And we know that if we give a straight, unequivocating, truthful answer in love, Try to sweeten that thing up as much as possible. You will without Christ. But let me tell you about Jesus. Quickly jump over the bad news, get to the good news. You know, no matter what, they're going to just hear the bad news. And you know you're going to get ostracized, ridiculed, made fun of, or worse. 
And you know that for some of you that have done this, it's really caused you to doubt, to question. Here's what John the Baptist did with his doubt. He turned to the Lord. And he asked the Lord for clarity. Reason number two, worldly influences. Reason number one, difficult circumstances. Reason number two, worldly influences. Now, the Jews knew that the Messiah was coming. The Jews knew it. They knew that he was coming, and furthermore, they had the expectation that when Messiah come, he would conquer. He would be a king. John has already identified Jesus as the Messiah. It's something that's been revealed to him by the Spirit. He says, this guy's the Messiah. He proclaims it. He lands himself in prison. And then his disciples come to him and they tell him about the things that Jesus is doing. Now, he's already known that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, this is the Messiah. So they come to him. They say, you know, this is what he's doing. And John hears that and he thinks to himself, Okay, well, I'm going to have to ask the question, are you really the Messiah? In other words, they tell him about the deeds of Christ, and John hears that, and that doesn't quite add up to what he thinks Christ ought to be doing. He hears about the deeds of Christ, and it doesn't prompt him to send a telegram to Jesus saying, congratulations, keep up the good work. What it does is it leads him to ask, like, you know, I see all this stuff you're doing here. Are you the right guy? Are you the right one? You're the right one, right? In other words, he observes Christ doing things, and the things that Christ are doing is right, but he has an expectation, he has an understanding, and Christ isn't fully doing all of the deeds that John anticipated that he would be doing. Where does that come from? It comes from worldly influence. You see, John knew that there was just supposed to be one. Are you the coming one? Many of the other Jews had this speculation in their head in this day and age that there might be two messiahs. John's not with them, but their expectation is that with the coming messiah, he has to be a conquering king. Now, that's obviously floating over into some of John's thinking because while it is true that Jesus is healing the sick, feeding the hungry, performing miracles, casting out demons... He's not really doing too much about the false religious leaders. And and you know what? Rome still owns us as a nation. He's not kicking Rome out. He's not dealing with Caesar. He's talking a lot about sin and repentance and forgiveness. And that's good, but it's not all the way what I thought. I'm hearing some stuff, but I'm expecting, based on what the rest of the Jewish nation is saying, that he should be this way, and he's not. That also creates doubt. And this has happened for you and me as well. How many of you have ever had a conversation with an individual who says, you know what, I don't know about this whole God of yours. If he's so good, why does he allow sin, or sorry, why does he allow suffering or sickness? Why does he allow bad things to happen to essentially good people? I don't know that I can worship a God like that. And they begin to pose those questions. They begin to caricature in their mind what they think Jesus ought to look like. And they ask us that question. And as we sit there, we can respond to that question one of two ways. We say, listen, that's not exactly how he has chosen to operate because he is God. Or we can allow that question to get inside our head. We start thinking to ourselves, yeah, you know what? That's a good point. Why doesn't the creator of the universe fulfill this guy's expectations? 
Why doesn't the creator of the universe conform to what my friend John wants him to do? Why doesn't the creator of the universe just totally not allow any bad things to happen to anyone? Why is there sickness? Why is there suffering? Why is there tragedy? I don't know. That's a good question. Do I fully understand this, God? No, you don't. But the point is, you're never going to fully understand him. And that's not what brings us to faith. The world says we have to have clarity on all things before we can surrender and blindly trust. Those things are antithetical. You cannot have perfect clarity and perfect understanding of all things and simultaneously place your faith and confidence in God. John is influenced by worldly influences, worldly questions, worldly expectations of what the Messiah ought to look like. He hears what Jesus is doing. He already has identified Jesus as Messiah, and yet because of the influences, he thinks there should be more. So he's seeking clarification. Number three, unfulfilled expectation. This goes hand in hand with what I had just said. John had an expectation of what ought to happen. And it's not happening. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet at the end of the day, it's just not going the way he thinks it was going to go. All of us start off in life, especially when we give ourselves to the Lord, we have these, these notions in our head of how it's going to be. I'm going to trust in Jesus, and it's going to be perfect. And for many of us in this room, it, it really is. We live a charmed life here in Canada. For a season, when we trust in God, we know joy, we know peace, we know blessing. All of us in this room, we're not hungry, we're not starving. We have a warm house to go back to, a comfortable bed to sleep on. None of us in this room have to choose between whether or not we take a paycheck or we go to church. None of us in this room are ever ostracized against in the marketplace, never fired or dismissed from our job as a result of being a Christian although there can be difficulties there. We don't have to make those choices, but they did. So there's an expectation. And for many of us, when we start to walk with the Lord, it goes according to plan for a season. Then things happen. Experience a tragedy. Loved one passes away. Somebody makes a comment to you. Your family turns against you. Your next-door neighbor, whom you were close friends with, once you become a Christian over time, they just decide they can't handle who you've become. And then the struggles come, and it's not quite what you expected. All of these things tie into one simple truth, which was true of John, and it's true of us. We have an incomplete picture. We're driving through the fog. And that's exactly how the Lord intends it to be. We don't fully understand everything. And so the response that some of you are probably thinking is, wait a second, though, he's a prophet. Yes, 
He is a prophet. Don't prophets get like the inside track? Don't they just get to know everything? No, they don't. In 1 Peter, don't flip there, just listen. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-11, Peter, writing to churches that were going through intense persecution, seeks to encourage these churches by saying, you know what? Not even the prophets had it all figured out. He makes a statement concerning this salvation that you and I are experiencing. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours searched and inquired carefully what person or time the Spirit in them was indicating when the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories would come to pass. In other words, the Spirit of God moves these men, prophesy about Jesus. They write this stuff down. And then they're like, whoa, this is intense. I don't get it. And our expectation is, well, they're prophets. They had it all figured out. No, they're prophets. God spoke to them. He revealed things to them. They recorded that for us. And guess what? As soon as they're done writing it down, what are they doing? The same thing you and I are doing. What? Help me, Lord, to understand this. And it's a supernatural miracle. People think, well, the prophets, they just sort of, they were, I wish I was a prophet. That would make everything so much easier. No. Actually, (laughs) on a number of levels, you're wrong. Um, But on the most essential level, they're just like you and me. They still got to go to life group. They still got to go to Bible study. They still got to break out their scrolls and, like, get some concordance action going and be flipping back and forth, you know. They're still trying to piece it all together. Peter makes it explicitly clear. I wonder if the guys he's writing to at the tail end of the first century who are going through all this persecution as he writes First Peter, I wonder if they're thinking, man, I just wish I was a prophet. That would just make my life perfect. Then I would just have a direct one-on-one link. And Peter's response to them is, you got the same link that those guys had. And you've got the same struggles to understand the word that they have. So John is a prophet. He prophesies the coming of the Messiah. And when worldly influences unrealized, unfulfilled, unmet expectations and difficult circumstances. When they come and they hit him and they rock his world, he questions. And that's okay. As long as you do what the greatest man till Jesus Christ, the greatest man that ever lived until the coming of Christ, if you do what he did, You'll be fine. What did he do? Are you the coming one? He didn't say, man, can you shed a little light on my situation here? Am I getting out of jail anytime soon? Is it going to be all right? Is it going to all turn out okay in the end? That is not the inquiry he makes. And by implication, that is not the best inquiry that you and I can make. The question John poses, are you the guy that in some way, somehow, in some capacity, are you the guy that sooner or later, are you the guy that makes this thing okay? John doesn't ask for clarity He doesn't ask for the difficult circumstances to go away. He does not ask Jesus to just go out and slam the whole world that's influencing him. Simply this, can I trust in you? 
And that makes all the difference, church. I was camping this last week with my daughter. And we see, we're walking along this trail, and we see this marmot go scurrying along the path. I say, Chloe, there's a marmot. Might as well be a marshmallow. She doesn't really know what that is, you know. <laughs> what? She's looking up in the sky. Maybe it's a bird. I'm like, oh, no, it's like a furry thing, you know. It's like a squirrel. You know what a squirrel looks like? She's like, oh, okay. And now she gets a little bit of a picture in her mind in terms of what she's looking for. So, you know, we get down, and it's like just like about 20 feet up on the trail there. And, uh, you know, we get down. I'm like, do you see it? And she's like, I don't see it. And I'm like, so I, you know, I lovingly, I didn't like, you know, I lovingly take my hands, put it on the side of her head, and I'm like, you see it? I don't see it. Okay. This thing's squirting. I'm like, man, I'm running out of time here. I gotta. So I'm like, get on my back, all right? So she jumps on my back, and I'm like, okay, look down the length of my arm like it's, you know, like it's a rifle. Do you see it? And she looks down the length of my arm, and of course, she sees it. Then she sees it. Now, why do I tell you that? You see, we all are going through life, and we have no idea what tomorrow brings. And we don't know what kinds of difficult circumstances. We don't even fully understand how our view of the Lord can be influenced and biased by worldly influences. And we all have expectations that sooner or later are not going to be fulfilled or met. And too often in our prayer life, when we turn to the Lord, we say, God, help me to understand this. Help me to do this. Help me to have this thing, expectation met in my life. And we start taking our laundry list of stuff to Him. When really what we need to do is we just need to go to Him. And He wants you to understand. Don't misunderstand me. And don't misunderstand the Lord. He wants you to understand. The trick is not to just try and figure it out and try to see through the fog and through the haze on your own. The trick is to cling to Christ and let him find a way to point your eyes towards what you need to see. John asks the question, man, is this how it is? Like, are you the coming one? And Jesus' response is, now look at him. He tells his disciples, he says, go tell John what you here, notice that. Please, if you don't see anything else in this text this morning, see this. He doesn't whip out the miracles first. You know that's coming. But there's a priority, there's an order to the words he's saying. It's not, hey, miracle this, miracle that, check it out, I'm awesome. He says, go tell John what you hear and see. Now, it doesn't even mention it here in Matthew because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience over in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7. When Luke is writing for a Gentile audience, he records that during the same event when Jesus is being questioned by John the Baptist, Jesus says, let me show you some stuff. And he goes out and he does some miracles. The disciples of John the Baptist see the literal miracles right then and there in that moment. You'll notice that over in Luke chapter 70, he makes the same statement, go tell John what I'm teaching and the miracles that I am performing. So even there, there's still an emphasis on the teaching. There's an emphasis on what's being heard. The emphasis is there, not so much on the miracles, okay? The miracles are done. But Jesus has to interpret those miracles for us, okay? And I need you to see that because here, writing to a Jewish audience, he doesn't even, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, makes no mention of the miracles. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. Then 
Jesus says, quote, he's quoting Isaiah, he says, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up from the dead. The poor have the good news preached to them. And he's clearly quoting Isaiah. He's clearly quoting Isaiah. It's the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation, unfortunately, of Isaiah. And so because of the variances of translating Hebrew over into Greek, we're not exactly sure which passage it is. It can be one of two passages. The first passage it could possibly be is from Isaiah 29, 18 to 21. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. That sounds awesome. He could be quoting that passage. If that's the passage he's quoting, he's left off the last little bit. You see, Isaiah 29 goes on to say, The ruthless man shall come to nothing. And the scoffer cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who, by a word, make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. What's it saying? Jesus is quoting a passage from Isaiah. It says, the blind will walk, or the blind will see, the lame will walk, the deaf will hear, and people like Herod Antipas will be stopped. But he doesn't quote that to John. Second passage you could be quoting could be Isaiah 61. This is the other passage you could be referring to. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the sick, to restore sight to the blind, to raise up and bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He could be quoting either one of those passages but he just stops short of the thing John would be looking to hear. Either passage that he quotes, one says people in prison will be let go. The other one says ruthless men will be stopped. And as Jesus says to the disciples of John, go tell John what you hear and what you see. He quotes a prophet, Isaiah, and he stops just short of the money verse that you and I both know John really wanted him to say. Which means that the promise is real. All the promises are real. The promise is fulfilled. And one day, all the promises will be fulfilled. What Jesus gives to John is not a promise of immediate delivery, but an assurance that he is in control and that he is fulfilling his word. John I am the coming one. 
I'm not going to make any promises about what happens to you. But to answer your question, I'm the one you can trust in. For us in this room, we all struggle with doubt. Some of us might be tempted to say to ourselves, man, I have these doubts, my faith is weak, I'm a pathetic Christian. You may not say that to me, you may just sort of confide that to yourself, to your close friend. You know, Jesus is a man, he's God, he's the greatest man that ever lived. But just like you and me, he had opinions of other men. And do you know what he thought about John? Skip down to verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? No. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than that, more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, look at this, verse 11. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. A man just got done questioning him. And that did not diminish the Lord's esteem and admiration for John. So you're here today, and you might be thinking, man, I have doubts, I'm uncertain, I don't get it. Here's the thing I want you to know. The Lord does not think less of you for your doubts. The proper response is to turn to him and ask him whether or not you can trust him. The wrong response is to say, I need all the answers and I need them right now. I need them itemized. I need to know the answer to this, the answer to that, the answer to everything. He wants you to trust him. So if you're here today and you have doubts, that's good. I mean, it's not good, but you know, you're not a bad person for it. Take your doubts to the Lord and let him show you what you need to see and trust that he'll show it to you in his time, in his way, according to his plan. Let's bow for a word of prayer.